Welcome to First Date Insights, offering information, perspectives, and analysis for public policy, management, and community and economic development in Delaware. Hi, everyone, and welcome to First Date Insights, a podcast presented by the Institute for Public Administration. My name is Julia O'Hanlon, and I'm a staff member at the Institute which is a research and public service center in the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. In this episode, we are joined by Kim Gomes, a partner with the Bird Gomes Group. So today we'll be discussing uh, some trends and issues related to lobbying and government relations here in Delaware. And we're joined by Kim Gomes. She is a partner with the Bird Gomes Group, which is a contract lobbying firm located in Newcastle, Delaware. Kim, you and I met a long time ago, I won't say the year, um, through the MPA program at the University of Delaware. And it's hard to believe how long ago that's been since we were in grad school and starting our public career, public policy careers together, and also a long, uh, long-standing relationship and friendship, that's for sure. And besides um, your MPA degree, your background and interests are, you know, really not what some would guess as uh, maybe the typical lobbyist in training path or direction. Many might not know about your former life as a gymnast and a ballroom dancer, but um, I know you've talked uh, about sort of this not so obvious alignment with what you do now and in terms of your past life. I was just maybe before we get started, would you want to share a little bit more about how you got into the field of lobbying and how your former life played and continues to play a role in as a lobbyist now? Sure, sure. Happy happy to discuss that and, and happy to be here talking about lobbying and, and all the fun aspects of that because I, I do really love what I do and it's a it's has become a, a great career path for me. I have an undergraduate degree in fitness management and uh, I was a gymnast, a competitive gymnast all my life and, and then I went to college and uh, I was extraordinarily bored because I had to figure out a way to fill all those hours that I used to spend at the gym. Um, and uh, while I was pursuing fitness management, I discovered the ballroom dance team and uh, quickly became a competitive dancer. And that also quickly filled up all those hours that I was looking to fill. After I graduated, I was super fortunate. I, I got a job as one of the fitness coordinators in the fitness program at the University of Delaware and uh, worked on campus for, I guess, about four or five years. And it was a fabulous job being on campus and working in the fitness centers and working with the students and working with the employees. And it was then that I decided to go back and get a master's degree. And I was looking for something that would give me a bit more breath to do something else, but still be able to use my, my skills. And I found the public administration program and was fortunate enough to, to get into the public administration program. And I went through the graduate program, um, and loved public policy. And uh, when I was done, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my life. And so I, I, instead of finding a job, I I looked at it a little bit differently. And I I took a look at my skill set. Along along my path, I've I've done a lot of different things in my life in terms of work, um, odd jobs here and there. And so I I I looked at my skill set to see what I thought would would fit. And uh, lobbying sounded 
sounded really, really interesting. And so while I will tell you that there is no stated traditional path to becoming a lobbyist, uh, it's not like you can get a degree in lobbying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I certainly feel like mine was a, a bit circuitous. I, I didn't have, I didn't grow up in a political family. I don't have an undergraduate public policy degree but it was the work that, that really intrigued me. And so when I decided that lobbying sounded like a good fit, I pursued it and I figured if I could align my skill set with my public policy degree in a career that, I, that sounded intriguing, that I probably could, could do okay. And so here I am, 17 are. Some years later. I thought we were going to do the date, man. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I won't say when we started grad school. <laughs> it's okay. I know it's hard to believe, but um, it's interesting. So in, in some ways, it's kind of like an art form. I, I think of like, you're really good at, with people, that's for sure. And that's that's a big plus, I'm sure. But sort of this like dance that you do with, you know, relationships and, you know, identifying issues. And I think it's a, it's a nice... Um, way to think about sort of the profession. What are some of the biggest changes over the past years that you've experienced uh, in your career um, in terms of how you do it, legislative issues that sort of, you know, come up or have come up? What's, What's changed? There's a lot that has changed in my, in my tenure doing this, but I, I think the biggest change I have seen is with uh, social media, both in the issues that that I have to deal with and also in the way that we communicate, uh, communicate with the public, communicate with legislators, communicate with regulators. We still spend a lot of time in Dover in Legislative Hall, at least we did pre-COVID, and still spend a lot of one-on-one personal time. And, and I don't think that aspect of the job will will ever change because a lot of what I do is based on relationships and networking and the ability to read a room and, and see what's going on. But the outside factors that, that didn't exist in the same fashion when I started, um, such as social media that exists now, play a much larger role and what happens in, in Dover. So that's probably the biggest change I've seen. But on the flip side of that, the, the social media aspect has given us a lot more tools to, to use in the toolbox in order to communicate with legislators. And I think the other, probably the other big change I've seen, and I would attribute this to, to social media and access as well, is that there's a lot more community grassroots on issues than I feel like there used to be. It's a mm-hmm. lot easier to educate people in the public and to get them excited about an issue. The legislative process can be complex and trying to figure out when they're meeting and how they're meeting in a committee day versus a non-committee day. If, unless you're living in it, it's, it is a little complex for the, for the public to, to expect them to dive in and figure out when and where things are going to happen. But I, I do feel like social media has made a lot of that a lot of that easier and has given the public a, a greater opportunity to, to have a voice and, and be involved. You know, speaking of um, how things have changed since we were students, I, I talk about the social media piece and I think about our current students um, at IPA and in the MPA program. I mean, that's, that's their, that's their life and, and they're, they're, they're learning and getting their degrees in a different way and in that way than we did. So it's kind of interesting we also, we, we read a lot 
you know, not a ton of, of attention on lobbying, you know, in the curriculum, but I remember reading um, Alan Rosenthal's uh, work and there's a lot of other authors who've referred to lobbying as sort of this third house, referencing the role and influence that the profession really has on representative democracy nationally. Um, what do you consider to be the biggest contributions your work has made on policymaking in the first state? So let me comment on the third house first. Um, I think that the public expects a lot from our elected officials. And when you go to the polls and you, you make that choice, you then expect them to go to the state house uh, or to DC, wherever they're working. And you expect that they're going to go in and make the best decisions possible. But the reality is, is that those people with their names at the polls are just like you and me. And they have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. And I think that it's naive to expect that they are going to know everything about every policy issue that's going to come before them. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're dealing with a very large statute that covers laws for everything you can imagine. And so to expect them to be able to make a really educated decision on everything will kind of set you up for failure. So, so the role of the lobbyist, in, in my opinion, is really to go in and, and educate the legislators. So I, I kind of see, in my experience, that there are three kinds of lobbyists. Those that do contract work, like I do, which means I'm essentially a free agent and I can represent anybody I want to represent with the caveat that my clients don't conflict with, with each other. Mm-hmm. And there's ethics rules out there that, that speak to that. And then there are lobbyists that work directly for a company and do government relations from the inside of the company. So companies like Verizon or Comcast, Hunt, you've got association lobbyists, so mm-hmm. like the Bankers Association, uh, where they have members, but they essentially have come from within that, that type of work to begin with. But then there's, then there's the third kind of lobbyist, which most people don't see as, as a lobbyist. But every state agency has a public policy person assigned to legislative policy. And I'm speaking only from, from Delaware, from the Delaware perspective. And those folks are in the hall as much as I am. And their role is to um, further the agenda of whatever state agency they are coming from. Right. And they're doing exactly what, what I'm doing, just from, from a little bit different, different perspective. But I think that while lobbyists, particularly contract lobbyists, you know, while we may not be the expert on a particular issue, our, we know how to find the experts and we know mm-hmm. how to bring the experts forward in order to educate our legislators, educate our, our regulators, and to, uh, to develop really good, sound public policy. And there is a stigma out there that lobbyists should be kept at arm's length because they're only out for their own interests. But the reality is that the government is out there attempting to legislate and regulate policy. And while on the surface, it may be a good thing, the devil's always in the details. And in most cases, that refers to the language in a bill or the language of a, of, of a regulation. And it is really sort of incumbent upon lobbyists, at least I view this as my responsibility, to go in and educate properly on, on the whys and hows of the language that's, that's put in front of us. And it's not, it, it's to make sure that there is good public policy. And is it in my client's best interest? Yeah, most of the time. But the, the majority of the issues I work on are 60, 40 issues, 65, 35 issues. I mean, it's, if, 
if, if all of the issues were, were so black and white, there wouldn't be a need for, you know, people like me to be doing, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing. So right. in terms of contribution, I, I, I like to think that the biggest contribution I make is to, is lending my, my expertise and my ability to get expertise in the room in order to create good public policy. Well said. Are there opportunities for uh, information sharing among like prof- professionals like yourself that do your type of lobbying? Like what tools and resources are out there to help support your work, like identifying, you know, industry trends or business operation information, things like that? There's actually a fair amount of, of resources out there, both on the, on the data side and then on the, on the people side. So there's a few pretty big organizations out there that, um, that, that we are members of that there's a, like, there's one called multi-state, for example, and multi-state's based out of DC. And they are made up of a, uh, a book of lobbyists in all of the States. And so if a company isn't familiar with lobbying lobbyists or lobbyists in a particular state, but they know they need some help on the, um, on the legislative side, they can call multi-state and say, Hey, here's my issue. Here's the state I'm working in. Can you, can you help me out? And then multi-state then in turn can call the lobbyists in that state and say, Hey, I've got a potential client for you and here are the issues. And so there's ways to connect uh, lobbyists to businesses that way. And then there's also, um, there's a couple of uh, just totally data-driven organizations. Uh, State Street comes to mind, it also located in D.C. And you can have a subscription to these types of services, and they do a lot of uh, bill tracking across the country based on, on keywords and, and what's out there. So it's, it's, a, it's a way to, to go grab data a, a little bit easier. Right. And then on the, on the people side, um, we're also a member of an organization called TAG, the Advocacy Group. And it's made up of uh, contract lobbyists like myself in uh, almost all 50 states. And we get together both nationally and regionally. And we talk about issues and and trends. And we also do a a fair amount of um, client sharing across the states. I mean, I will have uh, some of my local clients call me and say, hey, I'm I'm doing some work in Virginia. Do you know anybody? And um, because of my relationships, because we have spent some time um, with these people, yeah, I can, I can, uh, I can certainly recommend, and I feel comfortable doing that. And it's, I think, it's really important because they, you don't have, there's no license out there to be a lobbyist, so you know, there's no national conference necessarily uh, to, to go learn from. But, but we all, we all do attend uh, the national conferences, national council of state legislators, uh, council of state governments. There's a few out there. There's a few more out there too that a lot of folks go to, but we do tend to get together and have the conversation about trends, about best practices, about issues coming, coming down the line. It's very helpful. Well, and speaking of getting together with people, um, (laughs) of course the past four months have been different for everybody. How has the public health emergency and pandemic changed changed your work for at least this fiscal year? And, and how, how do you think it's impacted the way policymakers have done their work? It's changed it pretty significantly in that the legislature shut down for a while um, while they were trying to figure out what to do going forward. Um, I think they were very wise to, uh, to take it day by day, week by week. They were very much in line with the governor and where the governor was. 
And then when it was pretty evident that, that, that we weren't going to be going back to business as usual, they rallied and uh, figured out how to, how to get together as a, as, as a body and work virtually. You know, I had a lot of legislation out there I was, I was working on. Uh, and most, I would say 99% of that was, was halted. We were able to get a few things done, but, but by and large, it was uh, from a legislative perspective, it was pretty much shut down. However, from a COVID perspective, uh, I, uh, what I did for my clients changed slightly, but the fact that I was doing for my clients didn't change. So right. I was still in touch with my clients as much as I always was. Uh, and we were still doing work um, with the governor's office, with the other state agencies to, to make sure that, that whatever needed to be done was, was, was done. So I do a lot of work on the early childhood side and there were I, countless conversations about keeping the early care providers um, open and how this was going to happen. And do you do it for just essential workers or essential workers and everybody else? And, and so I would say the topics changed, but the nature of what I do remained the same. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of going to the hall, the legislators weren't working in the hall. So we weren't in the hall. And, and that was certainly different watching session from, you know, from, from my couch on a zoom versus, you know, being in the balcony. What was June 30th like? Yeah. Like, uh, it was, um, uh, well, somebody re- once said it was kind of a lobbyist dream because <laughs> no bills were worked. And so you didn't have to worry about, you know, something terrible passing in the middle of the night. Uh, it was weird. It was, it was, it was, it was really weird. Um, the house went in about quarter to 12 constitutionally the, uh, the legislature is, if they want to call themselves back in, they have to go in past midnight recess, call themselves back in. And then that gives them the ability to call themselves back in and not just to the, to the call of the governor. And so, so that's why June 30th is always so late to begin with, but the house went in about quarter to 12 and they were done before 1215. That's and amazing. That it, well, it's crazy. The Senate was a little bit longer. We had a couple of retirements this year. Senator Harris McDowell after 44 years retired and and uh, Secretary of Senate also retired, as well as the um, Senate Minority uh, Chief of Staff. So they spent uh, quite a while, as they should have, on on accolades and um, kind of recapping those those careers. And so they went in about ten thirty, but they too were out before one, and it was um, probably the least stressful <laughs> June thirtieth I've had. <laughs> Certainly the shortest. <laughs> right. Right. So what about for the longer term, how might COVID-19 and other phases as we go along, how, like, you know, the trans transition back to normalcy, like, what do you, like, what are your thoughts on that? Is this going to impact how you do your work longer term? Yes and no. I mean, the phones are still working. The Zoom calls are still working. The emails, the text messages, that all still works. The in-person stuff will definitely be put on the side, I think for a while, uh, unclear what the legislature will do in January. My sense is that, um, they're going to try to get through November 1st, get through the election, get through the fall. Um, I I know that leadership is, is working with the governor and that they will stay in lockstep with the governor. So I, I I think that, uh, like everything else, we're going to have to take it week by week and month by month and, and kind of play it by year. We'll have to see what uh, we'll have to see what they do. I, the the hall itself, particularly in in the house, because we've got forty one members in the house, 
there isn't enough space to, to set up for socially distant desks. So we'll see. I mean, until then, we'll keep doing what we're doing in terms of, of, of outreach. But right. it's a, yeah, it's, it's different not, not being face-to-face. I'm sure. I'm sure. So in conclusion, what do you think are some of the biggest lessons learned over the years? And so like most recently, what would you want to say to, you know, students or anybody consider going into the lobbying field, you know, in terms about your work, the impact, um, the future of your work? Delaware is a, a really unique state because we're so small and it's really easy to to move around inside the state, inside different agencies, and to have the ability to to get things done. And I I have watched um, many careers evolve over my time. I've seen legislative fellows go from legislative fellows to staff members to legislators, and and then you know out to 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 do other things. And so I, I think what I would what I would tell the graduates is never stop listening because Delaware, Delaware being so small, everything is somehow connected and stay, stay open and stay curious and figure out, you know, figure out where you want to be, but don't, don't ever burn your bridges. That's right. Don't ever burn your bridges. The state's way, way, way too small (laughs) (laughs) for that. And people are, people are always, always connected but there's there's a lot of really cool things going on in the state here uh, that that most people just don't know about because projects um, you know some of the smaller projects that are that are really cool and inspirational and effective um, they they kind of get buried because they just do what they're supposed to do yeah uh, but you know I would say get involved and and listen and ask questions and remain curious and remain open you'll yep. they'll do just fine that's good. Well, I just want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights and perspectives. It's really fascinating. And, you know, especially thinking about, you know, again, our time in the MPA program together and sort of how we have, you know, two distinct uh, career tracks, but very related. And it's such a cool thing to, you know, have you as such a good friend and, and to kind of think back and now look look at what we're, what we're facing now and into the future. So I certainly look forward to the next couple of decades sharing stories like this. So thanks for joining today, Kim. Thank you. That's all we have for this episode. I'm Julia O'Hanlon from University of Delaware IPA. And to learn more about IPA, you can visit us on our website at bidenschool.udel.edu slash IPA. Thanks for tuning in. 